Hello and welcome to Main Mother Matriarch and welcome to our new studio as well. My name is Louise Perry and my guest today is Katie Faust. She is the director of Them Before Us, a children's rights advocacy organisation. We spoke about Katie's philosophy in relation to centering children's rights and how this unpacks on pretty much everything from reproductive technology to uh, childcare to uh, adoption. As Katie says, it's one of those principles that is going to make pretty much uh, everyone angry, <laughs> regardless of where they're coming at it from politically. Uh, as always, you can find an extended version of this episode at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find bonus episodes and the MM chat community. Enjoy. Katie, I think I first came across your work when you spoke at NatCon, like before last, maybe, was it NatCon in Miami? Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago. And you gave a speech um, about your organization, Them Before Us, and and the sort of guiding philosophy of your organization. And I had a, I think I had at least two friends send this speech to me, the, the text of it, and say like, this is amazing, you have to read this. And I read it and I said, yeah, this is amazing. And I sent it to, to like several other people um, because, you know, I, I'm sure we'll get into this over the course of the conversation. There are, there are some policy points on which I think we disagree, but I just found the whole framing of it so startling and so effective. Um, could you just, without, obviously, I think people should just go and read it, obviously, but without wanting to sort of recite the whole speech from memory or anything like that just just go through the kind of the building blocks of your argument the point where you start from in the argument at the very beginning and where you go from there the NatCon speech is the only one I've ever written out word for word normally I kind of do an outline and then just you know let the the room the feel of the room kind of fill in the details but that one I was like you know what I'm going to script every single word that I'm saying um, and so it followed the framework that we generally use for all of our work, which is we begin with the child. So many of the issues and conversations and policy discussions that we're having when it comes to marriage and family, I'd say almost all of them begin with the adults. What do the adults want? What do the adults need? What have adults traditionally had access to? And so we try to reframe everything that we do from the position of what about the child, right? So we we begin with the child. And this has a lot of advantages to it. Um, But, uh, you know, a lot of advantages in that it's sort of a seamless garment of, of child defense. You can take these principles and apply it to every marriage and family question and come out with a policy that is going to protect the most vulnerable among us. Um, It's non-hypocritical, like everybody has to bend to these child-centric ideals. But I tell people, it also means that at some point I'm going to piss you off because it makes demands of all adults. So the the speech in essence began with, we have forgotten the reason why we're getting all these questions wrong about marriage and family, beginning with the definition of marriage, which is such a softball when it comes to what should we do in this area? The reason we get that wrong is because we have forgotten who children are and what they need. So the speech began with, 
let's talk about what a child is. And I kind of referred to the Vince Lombardi famous, like, this is a football. You guys absolutely blew what should have been an easy win. Don't come back to me saying, hey, let's work on new plays. You guys have to rediscover the fundamentals of the game. So that was what the speech kind of um, followed, that pattern it followed. This is a child. This child comes from a man and woman. Like only those two people are the ones that are going to be able to maximize the child's um, chances of being safe and loved because social science has told us that unrelated adults are not as connected to, invested in, and protective of them. This is a child. It's only those two people that gave her life that can grant her access to her biological identity. And children who don't have access to that biological identity tend to struggle in these ways. This is a child. She needs both halves of humanity represented in her home to maximize her development. Dads tend to emphasize and help children hone their gross motor skills and their cognitive development in ways that moms don't. Moms tend to emphasize fine motor skill development and talk to children right at their level. Dads tend to have more rough and aggressive play, which teaches them boundaries and limits. Moms tend to focus more on equity, which helps children to know how to relate to others better, right? This is a child. Like if that is true about children, then marriage is a matter of justice because it's the only relationship that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right and maximizes the likelihood that they are genuinely going to thrive. This is a child. If this child is who she says that she is, that means that we need to discourage divorce, except in extreme cases. That means that we should be against all third-party reproductive technologies that separate children from one of these two adults at the moment of conception. That means that we need to reject surrogacy, which always insist that children lose a bond with the only person they know at the moment that they are born. This is a child. She cannot advocate for herself. She doesn't blog. She can't hire lawyers. She can't submit amicus briefs. It is up to us to represent her rights. This is a child. When we get questions about marriage and family wrong, she is the victim, not the adults who aren't getting what they want or being validated in some way. When we get these questions wrong, her life is genuinely harmed. So, you know, this is a child and a just society is always going to insist that the strong sacrifice for the weak and not the other way around and children are weak. They need to be defended. So it kind of in a 15 minute time frame captured our message, which is all adults should sacrifice for children, and our method, which is to be child-centric and story-led, to really highlight the stories of kids who are impacted by these damaging laws, cultural ideas, and policies, so that you can look these kids in the face themselves, and you're not able to dismiss the kind of suffering they endure through these vacuous phrases like, if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy or love makes a family. Um, like you have to look them in the face and recognize the harm that they experience when they have to suffer through mother and father loss, usually because adult desires are prioritized above their fundamental rights and needs. So that's probably more than you needed overview on that speech. I think, you know, that I, my, my background is progressive, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm coming at conservative politics um, with with fresh eyes, um, and also and also British. And I read it, and I was a bit, oh, this is a little bit strong for my tea. You know, this is <laughs> this is this is real American conservatism. I don't know if I'm ready for it, but one of the things I find really really refreshing about your perspective on this that you mentioned briefly is that um, <clears throat> your equal opportunities about this, in the sense that 
actually this places demands on everyone, by which I mean it really places demands on straight people. Right. Actually, you know, you 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 make a very strong argument against against their party reproduction, which means, for instance, that gay men cannot become parents through surrogacy, right? So it's something we've 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 done a couple of episodes on this show already about surrogacy. Um, I have a lot of reservations about it, which I'm sure you share. Um, it also means that straight people can't, right? It also means that actually, you know, uh, the, the vast majority of bad adult behavior, which is causing harm to children, is done by straight people, actually, in this domain, right? In terms of people prioritizing their own their own um, fulfillment, desires, whatever, over the needs of children. So, it, I, I mean, this might be a good moment to talk about your own family background in this sense, because that's highly, highly relevant to all of your work in this area. Yeah. At first, you're exactly right. And that's why I tell people, give me enough time. And this message is going to make you uncomfortable. And, you know, I've had, I've been, I've filmed curriculum with churches where some of the film crew will not come to participate in the project because I'm critical of IVF. You know, there are ways to use IVF that do not violate the rights of children. They are extremely rare. And that's what I'm saying. Like this is, I will, it's equal opportunity offense is what it is. And if you genuinely take seriously the notion that children have a right to their mother and father, that is going to infringe on the lives of more straight people than gay people by the numbers, right? And it is heterosexuals who are responsible for the abysmal state of the American family right now, not the gays, right? This began largely with heterosexual freedom and the redefinition of marriage through no-fault divorce. Like that was the original like legal step that paved the way for marriage to become just a vehicle of adult fulfillment rather than the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known, which is historically how it's operated throughout cultures and time. So yes, um, that's that's this is not a, a message that is going to be easy to swallow for anybody. And yet it is the only message that is going to enable individual child thriving and thus social thriving. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, I am not um, normally this fiery. I'm very agreeable. Like I finally took Jordan Peterson's like big five test um, and was like, well, I've heard him talk about it enough. Let's you just and, see you and me I'm both, at. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like 100% um, in the extrovert camp, but like 87% on the agreeable chart. Like I want to just get along with people and I want to stay friends and all of that. So it really takes a crazy culture to get me to become an activist. Um, because looking back on my life, you probably wouldn't like peg me as somebody that would be railing um, against a lot of these new kind of family formations. Um, my parents were married until I was 10. They divorced amicably and thankfully remained friends. So I continued to have access to both my mother and father, which is not necessarily the case post-divorce. A lot of children end up losing a relationship with their non-custodial parent completely. Um, so after their divorce, I split time between their homes. My father's home um, where he dated a diff you know, for a while and then remarried and my mother's home. And soon after the, the divorce, she repartnered with a woman and they've been together ever since. So all through my adolescence, teen years, early child, early adulthood, early marriage as a mother with young kids and today as a mom with four teens, my mom and her partner have been a big part of my life and their life. 
and um, I love them. I love them. Um, and my mom is, my father passed away. My mom is still like, I mean, outside of my immediate family, she's my top person, you know, that I will drop everything for when she comes to town. So we're very close. I don't consider her partner to be my mother, but I consider her partner to be my friend. I mean, I've known her for the majority of my life and have never really had any kind of relational conflict with them. Like they've been very stable and, um, I've been really connected to them forever. So I, um, that, you know, one of the things that kind of pushed me over the line to get involved with this was this absolute like emotional manipulation by the other side saying that animus towards gay people or phobia or hatred was driving support for traditional marriage. That could be the only possible explanation for somebody to reject gay marriage. And it's absolutely untrue, not just for my life, but for the lives of pretty much everybody else that I've met as well. We all love our gay family and friends, and we've absolutely been held hostage by these, um, yeah, this manipulation, right, that is has been very effective. So um, that's kind of one aspect of the story. I understand what it means to be a child of divorce and the instability that results from that and kind of the the bifurcation of your life. Um, I also worked as the uh, assistant director of the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world before I had kids. And so I was responsible for, in, you know, making sure that we were compliant with international standards of, of child protection and elevating the child's best interest in all of our placements. So I have sort of a, an adoption background. I also have three kids of my own who are now teenagers, my youngest is adopted from China, so I have the perspective of an adoptive mother. So when I talk about the importance of biology in the parent-child relationship, which is a foundation of child thriving and child well-being, I can also talk about how adoption is a redemptive aspect of the fallen world that we are living in and confidently contrast adoption with reproductive technologies because in terms of the way that they operate, they are the exact opposite when it comes to trying to achieve the best interest of the child. So there's a couple different points in my history um, that are interestingly kind of coming together in this new project of, of leading a global movement to defend children's rights in the family. I read a piece of yours recently where you were writing about um, uh, the issue of gay adoption and particularly some um, conservative American Christian objections to it and a point you made which I found really um, affecting was to say um, look there are a whole bunch of kids who need to be adopted and, and mostly particularly within um, sort of domestic adoption they're going to have all sorts of problems um, any uh, American Christians who want to queue up to criticize gay men who are doing a great a great deed by adopting children in need of adoption like join the queue you know like it, like <laughs> it is, it is, it is, it is your duty if you're able to to offer these children sanctuary. Which is, of course, the the point you're making, right? That you're, if you're putting the child first, then 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 good adoption is a is a wonder, you know. So this isn't like a this isn't some argument saying that that unusual family structures are are necessarily bad. It's saying that when when tragedy happens what can what what new st family structures can we fashion which put the interests of the children at heart 
which is not what surrogacy does, right? Like if, if right. let's, let's get right into it with surrogacy, yeah. right? Like some people say, um, I wrote a piece um, a little while ago um, for The Spectator about surrogacy and, and saying that my my key objection to it, there are a whole bunch of objections you could have to it, but my particular objection to it, which is present even in so-called altruistic arrangements, is that it necessarily involves separating infants from the women who've just given birth to them. And that causes trauma on both sides. Um, I think the expression you've used somewhere is, is like a mother wound. Is that the expression you use? Um, a primal wound, yeah. Or mother craving, am I misremembering? Well, the, the primal wound is what adoptees have referred to as the severing of the maternal bond. And then the mother hunger is what kids experience growing up with the deprivation of a mother in their daily life. Right. And so some people respond to this by saying, but doesn't adoption do that as well? You know, like an adopted kids, you know, some of them are do okay. Like, you know, like this is something we're sort of familiar with already. Um, to which I say, and I imagine you say as well, okay, but this is, this is, this is in setting out to create that primal wound. It's not, you know, recognizing that in, in, in cases of abuse or addiction or whatever kind of tragedy befalls an adoptive mother, uh, sorry, a, a birth mother whose child is adopted, um, that, that in some cases that creating that primal wound is, is the least worst option. It's setting out to create it from the get-go. And not only that, it's creating an industry around it that profits from doing that. Right, right. That's exactly right. And, you know, when I, I think one of the reasons why our work has gained some traction is because you don't have to look at cohabitation and divorce and same-sex parenting and reproductive technologies and adoption and be like, oh, they're all different issues. They are not. There's one governing principle that actually can tell you whether or not you're on the right track. And the governing principle is, are adults doing hard things for children or are children doing hard things for adults, right? So that is the metric that you want to use whenever you're looking at these personal decisions about how to deal with a personal challenge or when you're looking at policy prescriptions, right? Where they're forcing insurance companies to cover all IVF coverage for single individuals and same-sex couples, or they're redefining parenthood, or um, they're putting two women on a birth certificate, or um, they're redefining marriage, or whatever it is, right? Who is who is going to end up doing the hard thing? Because someone will, right? These are challenging situations where either the adult is going to do the hard thing, or the child is going to do the hard thing. So that really is the way that the lens that we encourage people to use whenever they're looking at these questions. So this is actually where you can see the starkest contrast between adoption and I would just say big fertility, right? Because this happens with sperm donation and egg donation as well. Um, and surrogacy is what this is, is this is insisting that a child lose a relationship with one of the people they have a natural right to, their mother or father, and perhaps, and or possibly both, their birth mother, right? So these are all primary natural rights that children have, and they are harmed when they lose them. So in adoption, the wound exists. And what is the goal of adoption? What adoption does is it insists that adults do hard things on behalf of that child. So adoptive parents like me, adoptive parents like the people listening, it's not enough to just say, give me the kid, I want them, I intend to parent them, I promise I'll love them. That is not enough. You have to go through layers of screening, vetting, background check, home study references, training, post-placement support. Why? Because social workers individually and governing bodies collectively recognize that 
Children being raised by an unrelated adult are at disproportionate risk for abuse and neglect. That is just the reality of it, right? And that is why adoption parents need to go through such screening, such measures. In adoption, the child is the client. And that's what we used to say at the adoption agency I worked at. The adults might be paying us, but the child is the client. The goal is not to give every adult who wants a kid a baby. The goal is for every child that doesn't have a family to be placed in a, a secure and loving home. The child is the client. And what we see then is when we think about the child being the client, what they're doing is they're going to a family that is recognizing that they have a wound. These days in adoption, they hammer over and over and over that adoption is a loss and it's you know, entails a lifelong process of learning and understanding what it means to be adopted. So adoptive parents go into this really with the mindset of I'm here to shepherd my child through some of the loss and questions that they're going to experience as a result of their adoption. And so what that means is adults are bearing the burden of the children in their home. Why? Why can they do that? Because they're not responsible for inflicting the wound the child's experiencing. The exact opposite is the case when you're looking at children created through third-party reproduction. They also experienced a wound. They're also separated from one or both parents. They also lost a relationship with their birth mother. The difference is they are being raised by the adults who inflicted the wound. And that means that their psychological burden is heavier. So we only have one study that compares outcomes between adoptees and children created through sperm donation. So adoptees are raised by neither biological parent. Sperm donor kids are raised by their biological mother 100% of the time, sometimes with a stepfather, sometimes with another mother, sometimes with just a single mother. And what we see is adoptees fare better psychologically. They have lower levels of distress, higher levels of trust with their parents, lower levels of um challenges socially, emotionally. Um, they still have higher challenges than children that are raised by biological parents, but the adoptees fared better. And that largely is because they can process their wounds with their parents because their parents are not responsible for inflicting that wound. When a child conceived through sperm donation says to their mom, I'm really struggling with identity issues. It's hard for me to look at myself in the mirror because I cannot place my features. I fantasize about who my father is and where he lives and does he know about me. If he says that, he is talking to the woman that paid to have that man stay out of their life. So these two, you know, the summary is adoption is a institution centered around the well-being of children. Reproductive technologies are a marketplace centered around the desires of adults and outcomes for kids kind of show the difference. I didn't know about that comparison study compar comparing adoptees and kids conceived through sperm donation. Um, do you know that controlled for all of the, you, you know, we know that adoptees, particularly in sort of domestic adoption, are more likely to, to suffer from things like drug addiction at birth or congenital disabilities or whatever. Was that even despite those initial difficulties, they still had better outcomes than kids conceived through sperm donation? Yes. And the, this study is That's one of amazing. the very few genuine studies that we have. It's called My Daddy's Name is Donor. Um, it was done in 2010. The organization that did it, very reputable, lots of collaboration, but the but it doesn't exist anymore. So we imported the study. It lives on our website. It's called My Daddy's Name is Donor. You can go and read the whole thing. But they did have, unlike so many of the family structure studies today, they did have adequate controls. Um, they did derive their participants in a way where you could extrapolate the findings to a population-wide um you know, conclusions. So yes, um, it's too bad that we don't have more 
well-constructed studies that are studying this issue. Unfortunately, many of the studies that are now looking at um, alternative family structures are not ones that are, I would say, use rigorous, you know, methods to come to those conclusions. Yeah. And also it's very new still, right? So kids um, can see through some of these more novel reprotech methods are still not yet reaching adulthood. So we're just starting to have, for instance, loads of kids can see through, through sperm donation and reaching adulthood. And I, I've read some accounts um, online um, by people who say that they, they have, I guess, suffered father hunger. Is that the, do you think that mm-hmm. would be the right term for it? Well, let's talk about um, kind of some of the challenges that kids have um, in general, right? Anytime you're not being raised by a biological parent, and this can happen, you know, if dad just bolts after the baby's born, um, or if they're created through a third-party reproduction situation, or if they're an adoptee, very, very often children have identity challenges. And that's because it's very hard to answer the question who am I? If you can't answer the question, whose am I? There really is something that only our own biological mother and father can give to us. And this is why domestic adoptions in the United States have largely stopped being closed adoptions and swung completely over to open adoptions, right? Today, 95% of adoptions in the United States are open. They have some degree of contact or knowledge or interaction with their first family because Social workers and adoptees and adoptive parents have recognized that kids fare better when they have that kind of contact, even if the child can't or shouldn't be raised by their first family. Um, And now we have surveys of children created through sperm and egg donations who confirm, like, I think it's a human right that I know the identity, at minimum, know the identity of the person who created me, many of them would say, that's not a donor. That is my biological father. That is my biological mother. And so um, when you talk to the kids who actually grew up without one or both biological parents, they will tell you that it matters to them. Sometimes, like you said, it doesn't necessarily come onto the scene or into their line of vision until they're adults, right? Oftentimes when they're starting their own families. But largely, we have reorganized the practice of adoption exactly because of the identity struggles that many of these kids have faced. So what happens when kids are raised without a mother or a father? Well, children don't just need to be loved in the abstract. They actually crave male love and female love. And you can see that because when they are starved of male love, for example, young women will figure out a way to be loved by men. They largely will do it in ways where they're not getting it from the people that have their best interest at heart, right? That is why you see, you know, 63% of teen mothers come from father absent homes because they are desperately seeking to fill the love that they need from a man. That even if they had a wonderful single mother, that single mother's love did not capture that, you know, did not fill that space in their heart that they wanted, that they need to be loved by a man. Um, Boys who grew up without a father are disproportionately likely to be involved in crime. That is often because they did not have a man in their home to teach them use of physical boundaries through things like wrestling or just the um, the much more um, hard and fast disciplinary style that dads bring to the table, but often because those boys are looking for a man to love them through a gang. And so you can almost see these predictable patterns of male hunger 
and how kids will seek to meet them if the dad is not in the home to do that for them. So that can certainly happen through all manner of family brokenness, whether it is a divorce, post-divorce, or you know, a single mother situation where the single mother was the only parent willing to act like an adult, um, or kids that are intentionally created to be motherless or fatherless. They can also experience this mother hunger or father hunger. So that's that's kind of the message we have is you have these um, unchanging aspects of of child development and the realities of the child, you will either understand and respect that and then create policies and personal decisions that honor that, or you're going to victimize kids. Like kids are not going to change. You can't remake their their image, you know, into your own progressive ideologies. They are who they are. You'll either honor them or you'll victimize them. Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritizes immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ, and masculine and feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So find your Keeper at Keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I. Something I didn't know about until I um until I read some of your writing on this is the ways in which um instinctive male and female behaviour in parenting uh, complements each other. And since I read about this, I I now observe it constantly in our own home. Right. So things like um, mothers being more instinctively focused on um, the small. Uh, the fine motor skills like training to tie shoelaces and that sort of thing whereas the dads tend to be more instinctively into the the gross major skills I've often felt um sort of strangely awkward and guilty about my the fact that I'm not very good at playing like if I'm if I'm trying to play with our toddler I have to kind of like think about it I'm like okay we're gonna do a game mm-hmm. okay <laughs> you know <laughs> whereas my husband just like he just comes up with these amazing games all the time whereas what I find really easy and instinctive is the sort of soothing hand on the brow stuff the like the caring stuff and using different just earlier today our two-year-old tripped over and it was like his own fault because he'd you know he was like doing something silly with a toy and I instantly said oh sweetie you okay like this and my and my husband was like well you see why you did that it's because it's it's because you were being silly and I said you know and it's just it's so it's so cliched but it's cliche for a reason it's because these are instinctive behaviors which is not to say that we can't to some extent um, resist them, you know. I can play if I give it a if I give it, give it a real go, you know. My my husband's very good at at at, at doing the caring stuff when called upon. Um, 
but these are like our paths of least resistance. And when you start, once you start noticing them, you're like, okay, that makes sense. You can see why that would have developed in, in us as human beings. So how incredible that kids have one of each. How incredible that there is a mom right there when he trips and falls who says, oh my gosh, baby, come here, are you okay? Instinctively, you don't have to calculate. You just instinctively go. How incredible that you've got one parent that says, well, dude, you've got to pick your truck up. This is just what happens if you don't pick your truck up. And how hard it is if kids have two mothers who are constantly, stay safe, be okay, are you okay? Coddle, 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 right? Then they never get the message of buck up, try again, go faster, go harder, go stronger, go bigger. And how awful if you only have two messages of, well, here's how you should have done it differently in the future with nobody to say, come here and let me soothe you. I mean, it is almost, you could not really have designed a better formula for child development than to have two completely different but complementary adults in the home with the child every day at every stage of development, maximizing these different aspects of what children need throughout their life in terms of how they're disciplining, how they're playing, how they're caring for, how they're encouraging, how they're helping children to see the world and see themselves. It is, um, it is you would say it, it looks like design, right? Because you really can't come up with a better, and that's the thing. We've got all kinds of experimentation with family going on. One mom, one dad, two moms, two dads, three dads, a couple dads, a couple moms. We've got thruples on the horizon. We've got polygamy making a, you know, a resurgence here. We've got split homes where you've got mom and dad in different homes with new partners. And now the kids have more people to love them and all of this. And yet we have not yet found a formula that maximizes child thriving, well-being, emotional health, physical health, academic health, relational health outside of the married biological mother and father raising their children together. It's as if mother nature got it exactly right. I got to raise some of the feminist objections though, right? This is the moment to, what, what some feminists would say is hold up, just think how much abuse takes, takes place within the nuclear family model. Just think of the terrible things that biological fathers do to their children in terms of physical abuse, sexual abuse, abuse of mothers, you know, that like this is no fairy tale we can easily come up with lots of examples of this being a very long way from the ideal child rearing scenario um it, you know that thinking for instance about um uh lesbian women conceiving through sperm donation you know you might say well look like the most the the the, the person in a child's life most likely to be to be violent is the father, I mean, I would qualify this by saying it's actually stepfathers, I'm sure we'll get onto this, but you know, this, this is the argument. That's right. Isn't it safer for children to actually be in a house just with women because it's removing that potential source of male aggression from the home? There is, there is, there is some validity to some of these arguments. You know, what's your, what would be, what would be your, your response to that feminist challenge? Well, abuse by biological parents is a reality. And I would say that those parents are the most guilty of not putting them before us. <laughs> like they're the most guilty of failing to prioritize the needs of children in their home. They deserve condemnation and criminal consequences in a lot of cases. The, the problem for feminists or anybody else that would raise the argument that I'm being too rigid by saying it's biological parents that advantage children is you are working against 
everything that we know about family structure. So this idea that children are disadvantaged by unrelated adults, be they unrelated men or unrelated women, is so prevalent that evolutionary biologists have a, a term for it, and it's called the Cinderella effect. And it is exactly what it sounds like, that children who are raised by a step-parent are much more likely to suffer abuse and neglect, or simply, even if they're not directly being abused by the unrelated adult in their home, they are more likely to suffer tragic accidents in the home if it's not their own mother and father raising them. So yeah, you can find examples of, of abusive biological parents. The problem is that there's no other family formation that reduces the risk of that children will be abused. Now, if a husband, biological father is being violent, like that is literally why we used to have something called at-fault divorce, where the court could then reward the innocent spouse with custody and with money and with the house. And no-fault divorce sort of strips the legal system of being able to advantage the innocent spouse in that way. So I think there should be huge legal pen penalties for abusive adults. But if you think that you can just swap any adult into a child's life and they're going to fare no different, you have to work against common sense, natural law, and the largest body of social science that we have on family structure. Um, or you could just fact check me right now. Let's just do a little, let's just do a little, um, you know, exercise. If biology doesn't matter, you know, if the adults will be happy, if the kids will be happy, you know, if maybe they just need um, a maternal presence and a paternal presence, um, if it's just two incomes that they need, then children who are living with their mother and her cohabiting boyfriend should be doing awesome, right? So right now, why don't you just Google the words mother's boyfriend on the phone, pause the podcast mm -hmm. or whatever you need to do, Google it and come back and let me know what you saw. And if you're joining us now after scrolling through page after page after page of the most horrific child abuse and filicide that you've ever seen, like punctured by stories of horrifying child torture. That is what we're talking about here, right? That thank God, most stepfathers, stepmothers, boyfriends, girlfriends are not abusive. But some studies have found that the presence of a cohabiting adult is one of the leading predictors of child abuse. Brad Wilcox, who's the leading sociologist in the United States has said, the most dangerous place a child can find themselves in America is in the home with a cohabiting unrelated man who's left to care for the child on his own. If you wanna play around with the idea that biology is irrelevant, you are playing around with the lives of children. I noticed really early on when I was volunteering on Right Crisis Line and then later working in a Right Crisis Center that I was like, there's a lot of stepfathers coming up. We didn't really keep sort of records of it, but it, you just, you you can't help but start noticing that pattern and you know some of it is going to be probably that abusive men seek out single mums with typically adolescent daughters right um some of it is also going to be exactly as you say that biological fathers in particular have a natural check on um sexual desire for their children basically which mum's boyfriend doesn't have um and yeah, I, yeah, mum's mum's boyfriend is a catastrophe to have in the home. And you know, I tell you, I have had quite a few really, really painful emails from readers who read about the Cinderella effect in my book, which I read about, 
and um, which is, I think, a factor of about a hundred, by the way, the, the 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 increased risk to a child of having a step a step parent in the home, which normally means stepfather, um, and said, I am separated from my children's father, you know, through no fault of my own. I completely agree with you when you say that one of the problems with no fault divorce is it doesn't actually permit us to establish fault, which actually I think we should be doing. You know, if you're saying that marriage is a, a, a not just a sacred vow, but a legal thing, and someone violates that through through abuse, through infidelity, you know, whatever it is, like we should be able to say within a legal system, well, you're the you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong. You should be punished for that with, right. with, with whatever that is, you know, how we separate yeah. the assets, custody arrangements, whatever. And that's one of the mm-hmm. things that no, no fault of all can't permit. Um, anyway, so I have, mm-hmm. I have women emailing me and saying, I find myself single. I have young, I have children who are not yet adults. I long for a partner. You know, does this, are you saying to me basically that I can't have one, that I have to hold off until my children are adults? Um, until I, I I start dating again because of the risk of bringing this um, an abusive man into their home, to which I say I'm really sorry. Yes, um, and it you know brings me absolutely no pleasure to to say that because I'm not in that position. You know I'm I'm lucky enough not to have to have to suffer that kind of pain. But also you know this is this is this is the them before us principle, right? Like if your if you if your priority is your children that is the choice you have to make and remembering as well I mean the, the the reason that this is called the Cinderella effect right is because Cinderella is a um the C- Cinderella fairy tale has persisted I'm sounding like Jordan Peterson now has persisted for as long as it has <laughs> because it appeals to sort of deep folk knowledge of the fact that step parents have a have a sort of often malevolent presence in children's lives not always but often and in the in the before the recent past it was normally a consequence of bereavement that you ended up with a step parent in your home and you had a lot of you had actually plenty of blended families throughout the ages but mostly because of parental death what's unique about us is that we're creating blended families as a society not because of parental death but because of divorce and um, and I will not even divorce like separation without without marriage and yeah like this fairy tale it exists for a reason it's because there is like a there's like a there's a central insight there um that yeah we just have to face it's really it sucks but you just have to face up to it I think well I think that what you just said it really touches on um a reality that we talk about a lot at them before us which is maternal loss and maternal paternal loss they're not new like we've had a lot of experience with absent fathers sometimes on a generational scale because of war. Like we used to have maternal death as sort of a routine part, not routine, but much more common part of childbirth. And what we would do in those situations is we would mourn. We would recognize that the child had lost something fundamental and everybody would come together and say, this is a tragedy. And so what's happening now that's new and different is we are now inflicting and creating mother and father loss because we are elevating adult sexual desire or romantic desire or sexual identities to the highest good. And when sexual adult sexual priorities become the greatest good, it will always be children that are the sacrifice on that altar. And you can see that in matters of divorce, matters of infertility, matters of people who experience same-sex attraction or unwanted singleness. And, and like you said, 
even adults who are in healthy marriages who probably need to bend their lives to include a child who needs a family in their family, right? Like this, this world of prioritizing children is going to infringe on everybody's adult desires, but the result is children will be protected. So to me, that is the big shift that's taken place is we know what mother and father loss is like, but these days we're not mourning it. We're incentivizing it. We're celebrating it and we're calling it progress. You know, there's this whole genre of, of essay in um, usually American progressive media um, by women who've kind of blown up their marriages um, and write reflective essays on how they were justified in doing so. And um, there's a very strong the lady doth protest too much energy always <laughs> to these pieces. And there's normally something along the lines of like, um, we often represent divorce as being a bad thing, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. <laughs> you know, like the mm -hmm. sort of desperately trying to reframe people's emotional responses to these things. And I think that the reason, mm -hmm. the reason that defensiveness exists is because of a strong sense that it, um, that it's not true. And so you just have to kind of bludgeon people with, with social pressure. Yeah. Th there was a, um, article by the cut, I think a couple months ago, like nine women on the moment they knew their marriage was over. And some of it was like situations of adultery, but some of it was, you know what? I was just tired of him not listening to me. I was just tired of having to be the second. I was just done with this. I was just done. And it, it that's what it does. It's like, I had to do this for me. And so I wrote a response in the Federalist called Nine Kids on what happened after their parents told them their marriage was over. And what you saw in these nine kids, like I was like, hey, tell me, tell me about your life post-divorce. And we, this is not new for us. Like we profile the stories of kids of divorce, well, of all different manner of modern family, but like we've got dozens of stories on in our chapter on divorce um, in our book and all on our website. Like it's very prominent. Like we are all about the stories of kids. But what I noticed about these nine testimonies that got to me in a short enough time frame so I could submit it was all of them impacted the child's self-image, what the child thought of themselves, and then also how it hindered their ability to form their own relationships in the future. So their parents' divorce, you know, sometimes because one of the parents was unfaithful, sometimes because they just failed to do the hard work of working it out. But the kids either came away with, it must have been my fault. I felt ashamed. This, this made me feel guilty. I didn't want to talk about my parents or to my parents. I thought there was something wrong with me. Like all nine of these kids said it damaged their own self ability to look at themselves. But then also it just leveraged these huge struggles on them when it came to their own family formation. They're like, I had a hard time trusting. I had a hard time believing my husband wouldn't leave me. I had a hard time believing that somebody could love me forever. And like, we do in, you know, I think in media and generally over romanticize what adults want. And it's always the kids that have to just stick it. It's always the kids that have to then just be the supporters of what their parents want. And it should be the exact opposite. It should be adults who are supporting what children need. Which obviously does still leave space for saying in cases of abuse, it is, you know, the, the, there has been, there's been a wrong done to those children and divorce is, is the less wrong option in that instance. So we're, you know, we're leaving space for that, obviously. 
but that's mostly not what I mean that's certainly not what we're talking about in this genre of like New York Times the cut whatever right um right divorce essay going back to the Cinderella effect and adoption specifically right so so you talked already about the enormous scrutiny that adoptive parents are put under rightly because it's a way of trying to screen out this 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 risk of abuse right um is there an argument for saying that the safest thing actually for adopted children um is to be in lesbian households without a man there at all because because it is even if he's super screened it's still an unrelated male in the house you know there's just risk in adoption in general and even though you can look at the demographics of adoptive parents. They're less likely to divorce than the average biological nuclear family. Um, they have higher levels of income. They statistically spend more time with their children than the average nuclear family does, but adoptees still don't fare as well. Like there really is something that even the best adoptive parents can't fully compensate for. There is a wound there. Um, but it was interesting because in the lead up to gay marriage, there were all of these studies that said, you know, kids with same sex parents fare no different. And, you know, children with lesbian parents are at zero risk of abuse. And, you know, you can look at all of those studies and see pretty easily how they were flawed in terms of their methodology, you know, how they recruited their participants, how they surveyed what adults thought rather than the actual experiences of children. Um, and, you know, when you do actually look at the outcomes for kids use that they use to study um, children that were raised in two parent homes, you actually see that the risk of abuse increases even in lesbian homes. So Paul Sullins has done some data based, uh, some population based studies on this. Mark Regneris did the very first one where he used random participants and the risk of abuse to kids in lesbian homes are, was much higher. Um, so I'm sure a lot of those were kids that were adopted. So there's just no, you know, I, it, it's so funny because you still have people that will say, well, there's no abuse in lesbian homes. And there was this horrible, horrible case a couple of years ago in the United States called the Hart family of two women who adopted all these kids from foster care. And they were profiled, you know, heralded, celebrated. Um, they adopted black children. And um, it turned out that they were starving their children and abusing them, and they eventually drugged them and drove all of them off a California cliff. So I, I just, the narrative must continue though, right? I mean, it doesn't matter that you have cases like this. You still have people that are like, you know, lesbians. And I mean, I'm lesbians are not fundamentally abusive. <laughs> I mean, like, let me just, it's that when you are putting kids in homes with unrelated adults, there's increased risk to them. Um, and unfortunately, that can even happen at the hands of women. Are you aware of any studies when um, you've got, I'm thinking of um, lesbian friends I know who are, are trying to do, um, it's basically um, woman one's egg, woman two's womb, and then um, a gay male friend. So they have, you know, yes, it's unconventional, but but every, and the, and the child is going to live in the home with the, with the, with the mums. Um, but the child is related to the both women and has access to a relationship with the dad, even if he's not actually living in the home. Like I, I, my, my heart says that's okay. You know, I want to say that that's okay, even though of course it is unconventional, but it seems like we're kind of, are we getting all the components there that a child needs, even if it's a, even if it's non-traditional? Well, the nice thing is 
the child has access to their biological identity, and they didn't lose a relationship with their birth mother, which is largely considered the foundation for trust and attachment throughout life. So they have mitigated some of that risk. I think the challenge is you're still growing up in a home largely ab absent that paternal, the maximizing of the paternal development and the fatherly love, right? Kids are going to crave that. So it would be awesome if they have access to that biological father who can then do some of that father-daughter or father-son um, kind of connect, have that connection with them. Um, that would be great. But kids don't need a weekend dad. Like we have a lot of experience with kids who only see their dad on the weekend or once a month or twice a month. And that is not what kids need, right? We already have done these kinds of experimentations with minimal access to one parent that children should have access to 100% of the time. So yeah, I mean, I think they've done, a, they've made a better solution in terms of they have not chosen an anonymous donor that they can never say, hey, do I have a history of, you know, heart disease in my family, I mean, at least they're going to have that information, but they are not getting the kind of saturation of maternal love and paternal love that satisfies their heart and maximizes their development. The other thing is, when I was, as I've been writing, um, I heard this story from a guy named Pat Fagan, who has done family counseling for 50 years, and now he runs uh, a research um, organization that just gathers data on marriage and family related things. So I, I, it's hard to be like more of an expert than Pat Fagan. And he told me something that I've never forgotten. And now I see all the time. And it is that when a child sees their mother loving their father, they feel like their mother is loving them. And when they see their father loving their mother, they feel like their father is loving them. And it's one of the only instances, he would say the only instance where you can be loved indirectly is when you're watching your own mom love your own dad. And that does not necessarily happen when you've got mom and boyfriend or mom and girlfriend or dad and girlfriend or dad and husband. Now the dad and husband thing is a little newer, so we're not sure, but more likely that that's going to fall into the category of the step family relations where in those situations, the child can feel more often feels competition or jealousy in that kind of affection sharing. They don't necessarily feel that circuitous love of my mom is loving me by loving that man or that woman. So um, I think that there's something to be lost in that home because children benefit from and, and, and they get a deep sense of security from watching their mother and father love each other. And certainly children learn something about themselves by having a parent of the same sex in their home modeling masculinity or modeling femininity. And children also benefit from having an opposite sex parent in the home so they can practice interacting with the opposite sex that is going to make up 50% of their world in school or the workplace or whatever. So I don't know if you can say I mean, good for them for giving their child access to both biological parents and for finding a pathway that did not starve the child of that maternal connection at birth. But it's, I would be surprised if that formation on the whole is going to produce the same kind of security and outcomes that the intact natural family will. Okay. But if say, say someone is listening who doesn't for whatever reason have the traditional family set up maybe because of some tragedy completely outside of their control maybe because 
of choices made down the line, which they didn't, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't know this stuff when they made these decisions. And they're now listening to this and thinking, oh no, you know, how am I, how am I misserving my children without meaning to? Because I think, you know, all parents want the best by their children, right? I think we can agree by this, apart from the really abusive one, like that is a, that's baked into the parental mind. What could they do now? Like, what are the things that you can, how can you reintroduce into a child's life these components that they need to be psychologically healthy if they haven't had them all along? So let's say a lesbian couple who conceived through sperm, sperm donation, what would you, what would be your advice? Thinking of course about that you come from, from a, from a, from a household with two moms, you know, like what, what, what can we do for children to try and lessen the father hunger? I think the main thing that you can do is say out loud, um, you were made to be loved by your father. And I'm sorry that you don't have that. A lot of kids with same sex parents and or kids who were conceived through sperm or egg donation fear talking to their parent. They feel like they cannot be honest about how they are feeling because they worry that they are going to hurt the feelings of their parents. This actually was a problem in adoption for a long time as well. I feel like I can't talk to my adoptive parents because then they'll feel like I don't love them, right? So that is um, that I think has lessened quite a bit because of the way we're approaching adoption now. But in the stories where we that we've cataloged of children created through third party reproduction or who have same sex parents, especially the kids with same sex parents, honestly, these kids are the most in the closet of all. These are the kids that feel like because there's additional political pressures. I mean, if these kids were to come to their mothers and say, I really want a dad, sometimes they are told wait a second, that makes you anti-gay. I mean, like sometimes their own parents would say this kind of thing to them. So I would say for the parents that are listening, that are seeing that their child uh, maybe is not faring the way that they should um, because, because there are definitely some challenges that those kids are going to be um, revealing as they're growing older. And I'm saying this because, you know, we've got these kids stories cataloged on our website and I'm friends with a lot of them. And um, there's manifestations that happens, especially in the teen years. Say it out loud, acknowledge it, say, you know what? You really could have, you should have, you deserve to have a relationship with your father, your other mom and I, or maybe just me. I denied that to you and I'm sorry. If you ever want to talk about that, I'm here for you. It's not your fault. You're not weird for feeling this way. So, you know, that's the other crazy thing is these children don't stop wanting a father just because they're in loving and tolerant communities or just because our law has said that mothers and fathers are optional or just because we have made marriage a gender, gender neutral institution. You can't legislate away a child's longing to be loved by their dad or their mom. So uh, my recommendation is to say, I want to let you know that it's okay if you want this. It's okay if you're curious about who your father is. And if they say, okay, because I do want to know who he is. And, I, and I've been thinking about that for a long time, right? You cultivate what I call the no flinch face, right? Where even inside, if you go, oh my gosh, what does this mean? Does he hate me? You know, no flinch. Say, tell me more about that. Like, let me be the person that bears your burden. The problem with many of these modern family arrangements is they insist that children be understanding, supportive, and accommodating of the adults. So start to flip that, that relationship. 
you start to be understanding, supportive, and accommodating of your child. Become the safest person that they can share when they're talking about wondering who their parent is or feeling like they're starting to overly gravitate towards their male coaches and they don't know why or whatever it is. Let you like you become the safe place for them. A lot of times just the acknowledgement and the validation is going to lift a huge, huge burden for them. And then I would say in whatever way you can try to meet their need for male love or female love through the people in your life who are trustworthy. And the same sex couples I know, interestingly, always already recognize this. So they've got, you know, one of their fathers who are trying to play a big role in their child's life or one of their mothers. So on some level, they do recognize that that male and female love is important. That somehow just didn't factor into the equation that it's important because they need it every day. So if you don't have that in your child's life, I would say you might want to guide how they meet that need because the ways they seek to meet that need might be in ways uh, where adults will victimize them rather than actually support them. So pulling in that extended family, I'm I'm guessing you would say family rather than friends necessarily because of this whole biological relationship being so crucial or or extremely trusted friends. Trusted, trusted, vetted. Yep, absolutely. I mean, having more extended family involvement is great for all kids in general. I think that we, that could be, we could spend a whole other hour talking about that, I think. But I want to, I want to bring this part of the interview to a close. Maybe we can talk more about extended family. I also really want to hear more about your kind of, your emotional journey from, from, you know, what, what, what does your mom and her partner think about this? <laughs> I'm going to ask all of this in the extended sure. bit of the episode, okay. but for everyone else, um, where can they might find more of your work where can they um um support the them before us mm-hmm. well you can go to them before us.com go to the bottom of the page and subscribe we send a newsletter out every week that kind of captures what we've been doing who we've been talking to maybe legislative efforts our podcast is coming out next week um and you know inaugural podcast so excited about that so just come and follow us um i just would encourage you to start thinking about these issues from a child-centric perspective. Um, Once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. You start to see how in our news coverage, in our cultural, you know, narrative, um, we are elevating the desires of adults above the rights and well-being of kids. And so that's the main thing we want to do is just train people to look at their world in a way that elevates the child and their rights um, as, as the, not the ultimate goal in the sense that like, that's all that matters, but like that their rights should supersede what it is that we want. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm not great on Twitter. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm not playful enough. I don't know, but I'm on Twitter at um, advo underscore Katie. So that's where you'll get my opinions about everything. And we're on all the social media. Oh, and the book. If you want to take a deep dive, if you want to be overwhelmed with studies and the stories of kids who have lived this, Um, Our book will make you an expert. You will be unassailable when it comes to understanding what is happening and how to defend the children in all of these different arenas, cultural, legal, and technological. Um, The book is thembeforeus.com, thembeforeus, why we need a global children's rights movement. Katie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Men, Mother, Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. 
If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs>